Father, we come to you and we ask that you would help us and guide us into your word today and that the things that we partake of in it are edifying to us, Lord, that they fulfill us, that they also rebuke and chastise us where necessary, God, for our Christian growth. And we pray that you would use it to mold us, um, shape us more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, and sanctify us by it. Father, that you would just protect anything that I would say from not being of harm or being of just man's words, but God, that the things that we say and do, that we pray, that we sing, all these things are glorifying to you, God, and that they are of you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated and turn with me to the book of 1 John. We'll be starting out chapter 5 this morning, chapter 5, verse 1, reading through verse 5 of that chapter, but before we do that, I have something that I just want to do to preface this message with, and Ray had alluded to it also, is the importance of instructing our children, instructing our young Christians and even mature Christians in the Word of God, and why that is important and necessary, and especially in our world today. Um, When it comes to our worldview, we should not be looking to the things of the world in the world to govern our thoughts or to govern the actions, uh, govern our expressions of love towards one another because our study in the book of First John has been really keyed in on the love of God and the love we should express to other believers in Christ. And it's not just any love, but so many different forms of love that are being promoted in our society today. And it seems like the one that takes the spotlight is what I'll call a sensual kind of love. It is a very sexualized kind of love. And the Greek translation, I believe, for this word is eros. That is the kind of love being promoted. But the love that we are studying in the book of 1 John is the agape kind of love, the love that overcomes, the love of God for us, and the love that we should be expressing to those who are also children of God. But the love of the world is not an agape kind of love. But if you don't promote the love or love the love that they promote in this world, then you are labeled as someone who is intolerant or you are labeled as someone who is even a hater. And it is only by looking at the world and its ways through a biblical lens that we can begin to discern its goal and its ultimate end. I'm talking about the world. And our adversary is, he is a really good influencer. That's a word that seems to be used a lot today. Those who are influencers through social media, and that's usually not a good thing uh, because they're usually influencing people opposite of what God's word would tell us and trying to craft a worldview for us through the lens of the world. Yet we as believers are called to view the world around us through a biblical lens. And that's why we want to be uh, emphasized here at this church teaching biblically. And that's why we've chosen to teach expository. We don't want to skip over anything that God uh, says to us. It's for our instruction. It's for our edification. It's for our Christian growth. But we know that our adversary is a really good influencer and he works through the world and the things in the world to deceive and to confuse. And his tactics are no different now than they were in the time of John's writing, what we're studying. But I want to just kind of keep in mind here some of the enemy's tactics. So a couple of verses just to preface our study this morning. One is found in 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 8 through 9. As we think about our adversary and how he influences, how he deceives, we are told this of our enemy. In 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 9, 
Peter writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we are to be sober-minded. Remember, the enemy is after our thoughts. That is where he spawns uh, the desire for sin. We're to be watchful, watchful in prayer, watchful through his word, because he is someone who prowls around like a roaring lion and always seeking to devour. He doesn't let up. He is continually uh, seeking. He is continue going after uh, and trying to deceive. And we are to resist him firm in our faith. We also find in John chapter 8, verses 43 and 44, what Jesus says of our enemy. John 8, 43 through 44. There he says, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And he has been doing this for a long time. And he is very masterful in what he does in crafting lies and trying to infuse them into the lives of people who are walking in this world and even believers. But as believers, and what we'll find in our study today, what we're called to do in our study of John is to rise above those things. We are considered overcomers. We have overcome this world. And the world and the influencer, the evil one who is behind the evil forces of this world. So we don't live for this world, but we have died to it. That's what scripture tells us. As believers, we have died to sin. We have died to the influence of this world. doesn't mean that we're not tempted and we won't fall, but what is the pattern of our life look like and what is our worldview shaped by and I pray for that all of us it is the scripture that is the holy word of God and that that's where we go to seek him and his instruction for our lives and so that's what we're going to do today we're going to go to God in prayer right now and then we're going to read this passage from first John chapter 5 verses 1 through 5 before we do that we'll pray and Bo would you lift up this time for us please Amen. Thank you. Beginning verse 1 of 1 John 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So starting in verse 1, we see this continuance of this theme that we've been on, and that is this theme of love. In fact, John told us last week that if we say that we love God, yet we do not show it to our brothers and sisters in Christ, then he calls us out as a liar. Because if you are not showing love, 
in not just thought, but also in action, something that is expressed, something that is seen in your service to others, then you really aren't loving God the way you should because if you are indwelled by God, you should be, you have the capacity to love the way that he loves us. We're not going to love perfectly like him, but yet we have the capacity for this kind of love. And so the requirement for being a child of God is that you believe in Jesus. That has been emphasized, I think, four or five times throughout John, and not just any Jesus. This comes back to the Jesus that is taught in the Bible. And here John says, it is the Jesus who is the Christ. John has already said that anyone who denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is not a child of God. That has been one of the tests for us. But also to profess him as Jesus who is the Christ. And that is to recognize, again, that it isn't just any Jesus that he is asking us to zero in on and to have as the focus of our, our hearts and our thoughts, but to profess him as the Jesus who is the Christ. He is God's anointed, is what Christ means. It is the promised Messiah. Messiah means God's anointed one. So it is to believe that Jesus is the one promised by God to be our Redeemer and to usher in the new covenant relationship with God for us on our behalf so that now we have a peace relationship with God from his promise, through his promised Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Do you profess your faith in him as your Lord and Savior? And do you say that he is God come in the flesh and who, and who is the one who is God's promised Messiah to us, Jesus the Christ? And we've emphasized how important it is that you know this Jesus of the Bible and not just him as some good man, See, the worldly lens, or looking at this through the worldly lens, would say, okay, there is a Jesus that existed here, but maybe he was just a good man. Um, Or maybe maybe they would say that he was at least a prophet, or maybe he was some uh, mystic or philosopher or just an influencer himself. But the one and only Son of God, whom God put forward for us, is the Jesus of the Bible. That he was the one that was sent by God as God in the flesh, to be the one who would redeem us, who would purchase us by his shed blood. But God brought Jesus to us. He brought him forward. In Romans 3, 23 through 25, it says here, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that's usually where we end it. That's a popular memory verse, but it goes on to say, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith or by belief in Jesus as the Christ. To put your faith in him is to be born of God. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, repent of your sin, ask for his forgiveness, and we are made a child of God. In the Gospel of John, um, or I'm sorry, verse 1 here, let's come back to that. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 5 of 1 John, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So God is your Father, and this is the relationship you have with him through Jesus Christ, his Son. He is not your Father prior to your salvation. In your sin, you are of your Father, like Jesus would say, the devil. And in John's Gospel, the first chapter, he writes... Here, that we are made children of God through faith in Christ. John 1, the Gospel of John, verses 12 through 13, But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, there's that important faith component again, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. And the qualifier of being in the family of God is do you believe in Jesus Christ and his perfected work on the cross in making us sons and daughters of God. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 through 26, I'll give you time to turn there. I know I go through these verses sometimes very quickly. I don't want to rush through them all, but give you an opportunity to turn in your Bibles to these passages yourself. In Galatians 3, verses 25 through 26, we're told there by Paul, he says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Right? I think you're catching that, that key there, this, this faith. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And we may think that that's just a gender-specific thing because we see sons there, but what Paul is intending to mean there is this is those who come, all who come, men and women alike, who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, become sons, and also we can include daughters of God. Because if you go to verse 28 of that same chapter in Galatians, Paul writes this, There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So when he became saying you become sons of God, it is implying that this includes sons and daughters. This is men and women, all who come to faith. In Jesus Christ. So everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and will be coming back again to this faith component at the end because John begins this passage by faith and he kind of ends it and bookends this passage for us also in faith. So we'll be coming back to this topic. But look at verse 2 now. 1 John 5 2 says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So the knowing. The knowing comes from loving. When you love God, you're going to obey His commandments. So there's a sequence in that. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. So His commandments, when you do this, you are going to love the other sons and daughters of God. And it seems to be a logical steps in this, when Jesus says that the most important commandment, and we're going to turn to that because he's quoting from the law in Deuteronomy, but we're reading it from the New Testament because Jesus is quoting his own word here in Mark 12, verses 29 through 31. We see the steps or the sequence here as Jesus dictates it to us. He says, Jesus answered, The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So if you are not loving God, then you are not going to be able to agape love the, the love that's unconditional, you're not going to be able to agape love your neighbor, and this should be understood as the children of God, right? Neighbor is those who are, are part of the body of Christ is the way it's to be understood. Jesus said then that the second is like it. So it's loving God 
And not just giving it lip service, but it's loving him with all of our being, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, all that makes us up. We love him in this way. That's that agape love that we have for God. And then Jesus says the second is like it, indicating the clear order here that precedes the first commandment about loving God. is love him first, then you'll be able to love your neighbor as you love yourself. When we love God and obey his commandments is what first... We're seeing in First John. So the obeying of the commandments part is linked together with love, and we love God and obey his commandments. So John is joined in the two together by that conjunction and. And the evidence that the love is real is the obedience. If you love God and if you have put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, Savior then the Holy Spirit resides in us, right? The Holy Spirit takes up dwelling in our life. It activates us for God's use. It enables us to love like God. So you are going to have the desire to follow His commands, and you're going to have the empowerment, the enablement of His Spirit to do it. You're not only a hearer of the Word, but you also become a doer of the Word, as James would write. And if you think about it, the order of the commandments, starting with the most important, that is to love God, then to love neighbors, then obedience to the other commandments. Like if you think about the Ten Commandments, you could not follow any of the other commandments if you are not doing the first two correctly. Love God, love neighbor, and if you do that right, if you agape love both, then you are probably not going to want to lie to them. You're not going to want to steal from them. You are not going to want to covet what they have. You are not going to want to covet another neighbor's wife. All these things fall in sequence. Love God, love neighbor, then you will be able to follow the other commandments. And you have the helper who helps us in this. So obedience to the other commandments should naturally follow. Of course, this isn't uh, perfected in us. We are not going to arrive at this perfectly, but the pattern should be seen there. If you love them, you will not desire to murder them, not desire to lie to them or steal from them. Verse 3, 1 John 5. So when we love God and obey His commandments, verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So the love of God is shown in obedience to His commandments, and it's like a flowchart that you see sometimes that circles back on itself. I don't know if you've ever had to create PowerPoint presentations and you have to build in these flowcharts, but I've seen one that has these little arrows and they go about a third of the way through, and one arrow will be something, and then another arrow would be another uh, logical step, and then you have another one, and then it leads back to the same one. So I kind of envision that, and at the center of that is faith in Jesus Christ. So faith in Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit now, being able to love God, and then what follows is loving the neighbor, and then the obedience to the commandments, and that being showing your love for God through the obedience commandments, coming back again to loving God, loving neighbors, and you kind of see it's cyclical, but it's all centered around faith. In Jesus Christ. Without the faith, the true saving faith in Christ, we are not going to be able to fall into any of that sequence. John 14, 15 through 17. Again, the Gospel of John, and I think we've read this before multiple times through our study here. Jesus says, If you love me, you will what? Keep my 
commandments. And then he says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. God, by the Holy Spirit, is the one in the believer's heart urging them in obedience out of love. And then we see John saying that these commandments, they're not burdensome. He says his commandments are not burdensome. We shouldn't think that following Christ is burdensome. And the Greek word that is used for burdensome here is called barush, barush. And it has to do with the feeling of something that has weight being upon you. Something that is severe, something even stern. Uh, Strong's translates it or defines it as even being violent or cruel. So the word used there is to imply all of this weight that is upon someone, and we should not view his commandments this way. And if we're viewing these commandments this, this way, then something is wrong in our, our view and maybe even our, our love of God. If anything is really burdensome, it is sin. All of us who have come to know God can reflect back on who we were apart from Christ. We can think about the weight of the guilt of sin that we had upon us. And I think of what Paul writes to us in Galatians chapter 5 where he describes the works of the flesh, works being plural there. And then he goes on to say enmity, strife, and fits of rage, and sexual immorality, and sorcery, and all these things appear as works of the flesh, like physical labor wears us out. He's implying there that, that the works of this sin in your life is burdening you. It's, it's, it's upon you like a physical weight in the sense only as happy happening spiritually it is burdensome and that's what sin does to us so if anything is burdensome it is living our life in sin if anything free is freeing and freeing of a sin it is living a life in christ but you hear many non-believers tell us that you can't have fun as a believer that following god somehow takes the capacity to enjoy things away from you and that's that's just not the case but that is someone who is absent of the Spirit of God, helping them to follow the commandments and even finding joy in following His commands. But you hear many will tell us that, you know, it's, God is, is someone who just wants to steal your fun away. And that is because they haven't really been hit with the guilt and the weight of their sin. And they run away from the guilt. They don't want to ponder on it too long because the realization of death and the consequences of their sin might somehow catch up with them. In John 8, 36, Jesus says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that's why following His commandments are not burdensome. And it almost seems contradictory to say to follow His commandments, you must be set free. We are set free and we are relieved in the spiritual sense in that we are forgiven of our sins. We are no longer dead in our trespasses and sin. We are made alive to Christ that our sins have been removed from us. That is the definition of forgiveness, that our sins have been taken off of us. That weight of our sin has been removed from us. But now, more than ever, we want to follow God. We want to follow His commandments. And that forgiveness that comes by His grace, we are relieved of this false notion that we have to work for our salvation or our redemption. 
in Christ, we are freed to follow him and his commandments. And he doesn't promise this, though, that uh, our life in him is going to be easy, that it's going to be free of troubles and sufferings, that the scripture does not promise that, even though you may hear it preached from certain pulpits in today's world. But he does promise that he will come beside us, that he will help us carry his yoke. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we come up under the yoke in salvation, we have Jesus alongside of us, helping us to carry the weight that this world puts upon us that we are going to experience hardships, we are going to experience suffering. And for the believer, we are told that we will suffer for Christ, that there will be sufferings in him, but he comes and he helps take that yoke with us and he is gentle and lowly in heart and we will find rest for our souls and that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The burden and the weight of sin is not light and it is not easy and it will weigh you down. And you can probably reflect back and think of what it was apart from Christ to have that sin and that guilt upon you. But really, obedience to God gives us freedom to enjoy the many blessings that we have. He is the one helping us, holding us up, giving us strength. And more than just that, and having Him near us, we have His peace, peace with God. We experience something that is supernatural in, us giving, in giving us motivation to want to serve Him joyfully. And it's part of the process of sanctification as we are being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. And in that we find joy and in that we find peace and we find his love for us is there to help us. In 1 John 5, 4, we're going to close out these verses. I'll read verses 4 through 5. We see for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You can remember maybe if you were here multiple Sundays back, I can't remember the exact Sunday that we talked about this, but First John chapter 2, 15 through 17. I want to read that again because I want to remind us of the world that is being discussed here when John says that everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. What are the world that we're talking about? In 1 John 2, verse 15, John tells us, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the word of will of God abides forever. But if you have been truly born of God, you have overcome this world. And the world that John is talking about is not what we might find sitting upon a desk of the globe, you know, that you can spin around, that kind of created world, but yet it is the world as an invisible visible world system that is corrupted that is full of lies and deceit and has as its father the enemy of our souls, and that is Satan. And you don't have to look very far to see this force 
that is breaking through into society as God permits it. We can see it in various aspects of media. We can see it in entertainment. We can see it in music. We can see it in our education system. We can see it in politics, and the list goes on and on. And I'm not saying that it is all evil, but there is definitely the infrastructure of an evil system that is very much anti-God, it's very much anti-Christ, anti-family, and anti-Christian. Are we living for this world, or have we overcome this world? And do you have the things of the world, or do the things of the world have you? I think those are some questions that we need to ask ourselves here. Because the scripture is clear about what will come of this world. And we looked at it in verse 17 of what I just read from chapter 2 of 1 John. And the world is passing away with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's speaking of our eternity. The one who does the will of God has heaven. And that is the hope that we live in today for the Christian if we are looking to this world to satisfy us and complete us with all the worldly things that it has to offer, then we are searching for fulfillment in the wrong place. Now that song comes to mind, looking for love in all the wrong places. That seems to fit here, looking for fulfillment, looking for worldly satisfaction in the wrong places. And in doing that, in looking to the world to fulfill us, we are letting the world overcome us. We are subjecting ourselves to the world. We're subjecting ourselves to the things in the world. This evil system that is corrupted by Satan, that is influenced by Satan, we're allowing that to overcome us, and we are not overcoming the world. If we can look at the circumstances going on around us and say that I don't care what the world does, my satisfaction is in Christ, I'm made whole in Him, then we have a proper worldview. We have a biblical worldview. It is a victorious life that rises above the the situational or the circumstantial elements and doesn't live for the world, but for the glory of God. Or maybe it is that you look at the world around you and you want everything that it has to offer. And I see these catchy little phrases on, on bumper stickers and I see them written on the back of car windows that says, one life, live it. And maybe after this message, if you have that, you're going to go out and you're going to to scrape it off. But I wish that that meant it's one life, we live it to the glory of Christ. But that's not what it means. What it means is it's a worldly slogan that says, I want all that I can get out of this world. Things that make me emotionally happy and maybe that satisfy me for a time. But when those things kind of disappear, when the newness wears off, we need to move on to the next bigger and, and greater thing just to satisfy that want again. And that's what the world gives us. It just leaves us feeling empty. I got that new truck. Well, I've had it for a few months and now that new truck is not really satisfying me anymore. And now I need that new UTV. Hint, Jody. Um, <laughs> But the newness is going to wear off, and that's no longer satisfying. I know it's not in the budget. All right. <laughs> when we don't get the things we want, when we want, or when the, maybe it's the people in power do not do the things that we want them to do when we want them to do them, we let it overcome us. We fall into emotional duress, and it reveals where our faith truly lies. I was recently convicted about this uh, when I was in Tanzania, a couple of weeks ago, 
and we were invited to the house of the director of 1221 um, Global Ministry there, and he and his wife wanted us to come over to their house and share in a meal together. They were inviting us over for the evening. And so we drove to their house, and um, there's only like one or two paved roads, and they're the new, newer type roads, and then everything else is just like these four-wheel drive two tracks that they drive on in little vans. They're full of potholes, and, and it's just a third-world country, so it's kind of eye-opening. But anyway, we get to his house, and he's standing on his porch. He's ready to greet us, and, and so we're walking in, and he's greeting us, and he's apologizing to us as we're coming in because he says that he is without power, so we need to watch our step because there's very low lighting. He has solar lights that are in his living room and his kitchen so we can find our way around, but he didn't look stressed he didn't look unhappy. He had this joy on his face as he was inviting people into his house. He was just looking forward and excited about getting to serve them. And he didn't need electricity in order to be able to do that. And I found out later on that they will go two or three days a week without electricity. And here I'm thinking to myself, like, how would I be if that were the case for me? Inviting people in my home, knowing I'm without electricity, I'm going to be under such stress that, man, how am I going to keep the lights on? How am I going to, you know, keep, keep this exciting for anybody if I don't have any electricity? And it just kind of goes to show that, you know, we're really spoiled here. And I'm not saying that to convict you necessarily. I'm just telling you what it, it how it came to my mind and how it hit me. You know, here was this man, um, his name was Peter, by the way. I think I told you already. He was the director of this 1221 mission. And here he was, not um, wise by the world's standards, but so biblically wise in that he found as his source of peace and his source of joy, you could see that it was truly uh, in getting to serve others for the glory of Christ. Whether he had electricity or not, he was still going to service a meal, and he didn't care uh, that he didn't have much light or he didn't have anything to really heat his food with. And we enjoyed a meal with him, and uh, it was very touching. And it revealed his faith. And really, that is what John is doing again here, is that he's lured us into a test. Because true saving faith is revealed in our having overcome the world. Paul says in Philippians 1, 20 through 21, he says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And Paul could say these words in a place of severe hardship, being in prison. This is one of his prison letters. Knowing that he was likely going to be martyred for Christ. And our mindset should be what Paul instructs us in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We fix our gaze on the things that are eternal. That is how we overcome this world. As Paul says, we don't look to the things that are seen, the things in this world. We don't look to them to satisfy us. We don't look to those things to fulfill us, but yet we look to the things that are unseen. 
the hope of heaven, the knowing that for the one who is found in Christ, having his righteousness imputed to them, that we will one day appear before God and he will welcome us in to heaven he has made, where he has made a dwelling place for us because we are found in Christ and that is the unseen. Not the things that are transient in this world that is passing away and dying, but the things that are unseen are also eternal. That is our eternal home, and that's where we need to strive to fix our gaze on. What awaits the believer who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is far greater than we could ever experience here in this world, and that is what I pray for myself and for all of us, that we be ruined for this world, and not in the sense that we can't operate in it and that we can't enjoy what God has provided in the way of physical blessings towards us, but that we are not overcome by it, that we are not living for it. We live for Christ. And I pray that our worldview is shaped by our faith in the one who has overcome and the one who provides us eternal life through faith in his redeeming sacrifice and his having defeated death and overcome the grave. Our Lord is reigning victoriously and he is over all the things of this world and he calls us as well to rise above these things and put our hope and our faith in him and he gives us the strength to do so. And if you have not repented of your sin and turned to Christ in faith, then all you have to look to is your works. Maybe you attend church and you see your participation as something that earns you favor with God. You may be thinking you are enjoying your life lived here and you don't even need God. All that churchy stuff is boring. All that stuff is is burdensome to you. Who wants to follow those rules? Well, if you look around you here at this church, I hope that what you will see, if that former definition fits any of you here, I hope that what you see here are people filled with the peace of God. Sinners who are saved, forgiven, and transformed. That there is an inner joy and a peace that is evident because we have been set free. Set free indeed by Jesus Christ. That you can see it in the way we love each other and serve in the body of Christ. That we are fulfilled because our everything is found in him that we serve together for the glory of his name and the advancement of his kingdom. This is something that the non-Christian cannot experience because they do not have a heart that is changed. We need to be born into his family. Christ brings us in by faith in his completed work on the cross where he shed his blood for our redemption, for the forgiveness of our sins, relieving us from the burden and guilt of sin. And as we enter into what we call Holy Week, I pray that we ponder this precious gift that has been given to us in Christ. And many of us, I hope, will be back here Friday evening to share in a meal together and then participate in the Lord's Supper. But we are going to be tempted a lot this week, I have a feeling. You know, I'm not trying to make a prediction or prophesy, but I know that we walk in this world, the great influencer is going to be at his work tempting us, tempting us to get our focus off of God to be distracted, but let's be reminded of what it cost our Savior to bring us this peace that we have with God. Paul would center his focus like this, and it's what I'm going to end with today, and it's found in Philippians 3, 9 through 11, that we want to be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you, God, that you have given us your word. I ask that you help each and every one of us through it to see the world around us as something that is falling away, that it's perishing. God, I think of the psalmist Asaph as he wrote about his own struggles where he was looking at the world around them and he was seeing them getting rich and he was seeing them um, eating all that they, they had. They had the world's riches. They had everything at their fingertips that the world could provide. And he almost stumbled as a result of that. And God, I find myself sometimes doing that myself, <laughs> you know, looking at things that others have and getting my focus off of you. And I know that's what the enemy would want. Father, uh, as Asaph also recognized, it wasn't until he came into your sanctuary that he discerned their end. And the end for them, Lord, is to perish into eternity apart from you, God. But for those who are found in you, we have a victorious life, or a life filled with your love, a life that is overflowing and is shared with others who are experiencing the fellowship with you as one in the body of Christ. We just thank you so much for that gift, the gift that was given to us through your sending your son to be the propitiation for our sins to shed his blood upon the cross, to die the death that we deserve, God, for our sin, to pay that sin debt that we owed, to redeem us, to purchase us with his blood, and to give us a peace relationship with you. But he didn't just stay in the grave, Lord, that he overcame it, and now he is seated at your right hand, and we want to live our life to glorify and honor him, and to be like Paul, to say, to live here, if you so choose, is Christ but to die is gain, and no matter what you have for us, Lord, that we are satisfied in you. In Jesus' name, amen.